This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. David and I recorded this episode with Roger Chen back in December 2015. Roger was a principal at OATV, that's O'Reilly's sister venture capital firm, and he's done a lot of research on hardware and robotics startups. Since we recorded this, Roger has moved on from OATV, but in this episode, he brings a lot of terrific perspective as both an investor and a PhD in electrical engineering who's looked at the industry from both sides. So we're here today with Roger Chen, who's a principal at O'Reilly Alpha Tech Ventures. This is the sister venture capital firm to O'Reilly Media, the publishing house. Um, we talk a lot about stuff that's emerging, stuff that Roger has seen, stuff that we're seeing through the hardware area at O'Reilly. Uh, and uh, Roger's thought a lot about hardware from the point of view of a VC and, and investing in these companies and how their business models work. So welcome, Roger. Thank you. So what are you working on these days? These days, um, a lot is same mode, which is looking for great companies started by great founders to back and invest in. Um, and do you want me to kind of give some background on OATV or? Sure. Okay. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, OATV, you know, it's a fund that was co-founded by Tim O'Reilly, um, just about a decade ago, actually. And, you know, the whole idea was, you know, through O'Reilly Media, there's a lot of, uh, access to just really great technical communities that are working on really interesting things, right? And these things inevitably spill into markets and it gives rise to a lot of really interesting companies. And so uh, a while back, this firm was formed to uh, help seed some of these companies with capital, right? And uh, this means that by definition too, as the communities change and the uh, types of te technologies change, kind of our focus areas have changed as well. So I would say early on, we've done a lot of consumer internet companies uh, like Foursquare to later on doing more hardware-centric uh, companies like 3D Robotics and Drones to then even satellite companies like Planet Labs, right? Each mm -hmm. time, again, paying attention to uh, what makers are doing, what hackers are doing, what these communities are doing, and getting a sense for when they might actually impact the marketplace. Um, so as a firm, uh, we focus on stage. Uh, we focus on investing on the edge. Uh, and we're, we're fairly technology agnostic, right? And I think uh, if you look at Silicon Valley in the Bay Area, the majority of it has been um, focused on software. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, we, you know, if you look at our portfolio, most of our portfolio is software as well. But that said, um, when we think there's a very compelling hardware product, we're not afraid to go into it and back it mm -hmm. uh, if we believe in a company. And as a result, I would say we actually have probably more hardware investments in our portfolio than most firms out there. So when you when you look at uh, hardware companies that you guys are investing in, are are they you know technologically novel or do they represent some sort of new way of of thinking about the hardware business? Um, you know, I would say for the most part they are novel in the sense of um, in the recombinant sense, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think most of the companies like we're not going to back hardware companies that might require very fundamental R and D left, mm -hmm. right? Um, at the semiconductor level or anything like that. But I think um, there are certain trends that happen within hardware that lead to 
you know, lower cost curves, higher functionality, higher performance, and uh, the ability to kind of combine them into interesting uh, new applications that uh, have a cost structures that are actually palatable to us as investors mm-hmm. leads to interesting things. Right? And this is exactly what kind of happened with uh, drones as well as satellites, right? As to investment categories that were not investment categories previously, because frankly speaking, the pieces, the parts that you needed to uh, assemble to put these things together were just way too expensive. Mm-hmm. But now, mm-hmm. now effectively, they're just cell phone parts, smartphone mm-hmm. parts that um, you know make up the guts of a Planet Labs. Uh, a uh, dove, right? That's what mm-hmm. we call the mm-hmm. satellites that go into space, or a three uh, D robotics drone, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there is a bit of a timing to this thing, right? Like as um, different hardware technologies and components um, go through their life cycle and become cheaper and lower cost and higher higher performance, like app, it, it continuously creates uh, these moments in time, moments in history where uh, recombinant things like drones or satellites. Uh, Logistics, robotics, in the future, in the future, who knows what else? Mm-hmm. Right, gives them uh, a chance to emerge, and we love to pay attention to that and invest in those sorts of things. Cool. You you mentioned uh, that uh, you know OATV started looking at hardware because uh, you guys are very close to the Maker movement, and mm-hmm. for a long time, of course, Make Magazine and, and Maker Fair were part of O'Reilly. Now it's an independent company that that is also a portfolio company of OATV. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that this hardware startup movement? is actually flowing out of the maker movement? Like, are these makers growing up and having companies or are they simply enabled Staying. by the same tools yeah. as the as the hobbyists? I, I think so, yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think it's an absolute. I think some of these companies can come from outside of maker communities and are formed more in parallel mm-hmm. to maker communities. But the reality is I, I actually think some of these um, people who start companies very much do come from maker communities, right? I think mm-hmm. uh, 3D Robotics as an, an example again here, you know, before it was 3D Robotics, it was Chris Anderson, Jordy Munoz, uh, and DIY Drones, which very much was a maker community mm-hmm. before they realized that yeah. there was this bigger opportunity and commercialized it. Yeah, I agree. I think same thing with Particle now as well. That's right. Um, also a portfolio I, company. Yeah. I think, well, so I think that there's a big question that people are talking about right now, you know, like with the rise of Make Magazine happened and everyone's like, oh yeah, we're bringing DIY back. And then like Arduino's happened and stuff and the optimists are like, this is going to change the way that everybody does everything. We're going to like go back to having artisanal, free range, homemade electronic products everywhere. And then like the sort of more cynical, you know, old school engineers and and other people are like, okay, well, I mean, this is cool for like, it's like hobby. I've been doing this in my basement forever. It's nice that they put some new graphic design on it, but like whatever. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But also we're definitely seeing kind of concurrently this whole new hardware movement thing happening and like companies like, OATV doing more investing in new hardware companies and and I guess we're trying to we're interested in finding out is this like is like the maker movement like a starting point that's like that's like spawning more things or is just like the world generally more interested in doing like you know young sexy hardware with better graphic design now or like I'm I'm, I'm interested in knowing how the whole maker movement thing is influencing what we're seeing in the new hardware movement as far as the businesses and startups go. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, if you ask me to hey, can you specify um, when you think the maker movement started and when it might end, I honestly would have a hard time answering that because I think uh, making as just a concept is something that's existed, you know, as long as people have existed. Now, maybe in different incarnations, enabled by different tools and things and different mentalities, but uh, it's always existed, right? And I think um, to a certain extent, I think things are being accelerated now a little bit more. And um, I think the reason why is just because there's more access, right, to information. There's also more access to tools, um, and access to tools means literally physical access to tools through things like TechShop, but also through uh, just kind of lower cost 
of these tools, right? Being able to acquire them and use mm-hmm. them for your own kind of personal hobbyists or whatever functions. I, I think and those tools are more digital too. They're, yeah. they're easier to, to interact with through the familiar interface of a computer rather than uh, through the lower level technical interface. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think you brought up an interesting point, which is like, what, how is it evolving now? And I think, I think it is going through an interesting thing now, right? I think before um, we think of the maker movement specifically as kind of these communities, uh, you know, of people who all know each other, actually, they all know one another, they're all working on drones, they're all working on uh, with Arduinos on various things. And I think now it's kind of a little bit more uh, decentralized, I guess, from these communities. And you're seeing like really everyday people everywhere around the world working on really interesting things. And some of them could be very different things. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think this is going to, you know, I, I think it spawns a couple of things. I, I think it spawns one, what we kind of call like the Maker Go Pro movement, which mm-hmm. is, you know, makers who coalesce and really make a concerted effort and maybe even form open source communities around certain technologies. And, you know, I think that's very conducive to actually to spawning a lot of startups, mm-hmm. but it also leads to just kind of like this notion of uh, uh, creators and almost uh, businesses of individuals, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. uh, that's actually something that really excites me. I, I think the maker movement's kind of expanded to a point where, by the way, this expands beyond kind of electronics and, mm-hmm. and hardware as we might traditionally think about it into even like arts and crafts. Sure, right? like, anything you see happening on Etsy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Etsy's, Etsy's a perfect example, right? Like you're, you're getting to this point where you have, because again, of the wide access of information and, and tools, mm-hmm. you have these network-based marketplaces yeah. like Etsy where, where like, you know, individual creators are able to actually make income yeah, off of yeah. their creations, right? Yeah, yeah that's great. I'm, I'm a member of Tech Shop and whenever I go in there, it's clear that everyone on the laser cutters is running an Etsy business out of Tech Shop. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, this is, um, Etsy is on one of the slides that I use to explain this new hardware movement that it's like all of these new things at every stage of the process of creating some physical product. So the, the design process has changed because you have like Fusion 360, which is almost free and incredibly sophisticated design software. The prototyping process has changed because you have these like electronics prototyping platforms. You have CNC machine tools that are easy to use, 3D printers. The manufacturing has changed because of Shenzhen. And then the marketing has changed mm-hmm. because of Etsy, um, you know, and, and Amazon and, and, and eBay that let you, as well as the more specialized, you know, vertically oriented online uh, retailers that let you market you know, some, some product to a niche audience and find a high enough volume to sustain some, some interesting new thing. So a lot of these things aren't even aiming to become big. They're just like, they're existing and, and that's remarkable in itself. Yeah. It's like a, it's a natural, again, this, even, even as we're talking about hardware, really even, uh, the maker movement and everything that we're seeing in hardware, it's really enabled by, again, the internet, like the internet (laughs) is just catalyzing so much. Um, and what you're referring to just now is just this natural amplification effect mm-hmm. that the internet has had, right? Like, I think um, it wasn't <laughs> like uh, people just started making handmade goods, right? Right. But now they have an actual channel that fortunately people like uh, the founders of Etsy have built to uh, get get the word out about it, market it, have mm-hmm. a channel to sell it, have a channel to um, actually uh, not just do it for fun, but actually accrue some value from it. And mm-hmm. I, I, I honestly think that's just going to, uh, continue, right? And I think it's going to expand beyond um, physical handmade goods to, um, you know, other types of hardware to maybe even uh, arts and crafts to skills training, coaching, all sorts of things. And I mean, to a certain extent, it's even happening with uh, professional services a little bit, right? Like companies mm-hmm. like Thumbtack, where, you know, I think I can see a future where that evolves into something where, uh, again, these are kind of hard, 
hard-earned uh, customized skills, personalized skills that individuals have that you know other individuals don't have. And mm-hmm. it just creates a natural kind of marketplace phenomenon that normally would be really hard to achieve if everything's localized. Uh, right. You know? Yeah, there's, there's a consumer movement that's parallel to the producer movement. So if you think about the producer movement as like makers creating Etsy businesses, mm-hmm. there's a consumer movement parallel to that, which is you know increased premium placed on handmade things that have mm-hmm. a story. And so people who aren't themselves makers still love to buy stuff from makers and uh, you know, and enjoy the, the backstory that this is the person who made it, this is how she made it, whatever. And so you've, you've also looked a lot at uh, robotics. You and I, Roger, have talked about, about sort of robotics startups and where that's headed. Where do you think this, this new crop of robotics startups is going? Wait, what is the new crop of robotics startups? I was hoping you wouldn't ask that because I don't have any names <laughs> off the top of my head. But OATV invested in one. Yeah, yeah, we invest in a company called uh, Fetch Robotics, which I think is very, very much encompasses, I guess, the new wave of robotics, uh, as David uh, kind of just alluded to. But I, I think for me, it means a couple of things, right? You know, they're a mobile robotics company, but really at the heart of it, it's it's about <laughs> flexible robotics, right? It's about robotics that can be adapted readily to many different applications, right? I think if you look at uh, robotics traditionally, it's been about um, very repeatable processes, right? High performance, high cost, very repeatable, high precision. Mm-hmm. Um, the same robots that help assemble cars, uh, help move boxes off conveyor belts, uh, things like that. I think we're getting to a point where you know a lot of the uh, tasks that need to be automated, let's say in a uh, distribution center mm-hmm. or in a warehouse, you know, quite frankly, they're not repeatable to a nature where a robot has to do the exact same thing time and time again. SKUs change, uh, mm-hmm. stock changes, inventory changes. And so you also need an automation system that can similarly adapt. Uh, but yeah, no, this notion of flexibility, I think just this class of robotics is, you know, different. They, they can be reprogrammed. Uh, you know, it's not easy. We're still working on a lot of technologies, but they're reprogrammable. Uh, they're so is, collaborative. Is right? Fetch a compliant robot? Uh, fetch can be compliant. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, so th- that means it can it can operate in the same space as humans, which is really which is really new. Yeah, basically, there there's uh, just to kind of summarize, it's essentially there's there's some sort of sensor feedback mechanism that allows the arm of a robot, for example, to know when it's uh, touched something that maybe it should not and stop, rather mm-hmm. supposed to just continue through a uh, motion path and not lop someone's head off. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, what are some of the trends that are developing in in robotics recently that that you're excited about that startups are working on you know new technologies in the field that allow robots to do things that they weren't able to do before yeah yeah it's a it's a great question um i'm obviously excited by the continued innovation in the recombinant sense right with hardware and hardware engineering um but i think where you know the next opportunity and you know the challenge and opportunity uh, exists for robotics is going to be in the software engineering side of it right mm-hmm. um you know, actually, Mike Ferguson, the CTO of Fetch Robotics, has uh, this great kind of phrase. He says, you know, we think about um, ROS. This is the robot operating system, uh, the open source kind of framework for programming software applications for robotics. That's really catalyzed a ton of software um, development for modern robotics. And I think that's really catalyzed uh, some of these companies and products, mm-hmm. right? And he has a saying, like, where is the ROS for perception? The reality mm-hmm. is, I think... Um, while machine learning is getting better, while machine perception and computer vision is getting better, it's not quite there yet. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there for people to come in and create new innovations to further catalyze this field even more. And so for me, that's kind of like the next big uh, hurdle to get over. But once that hurdle is getting gone, has been gotten over, is going to unleash so much more in mm-hmm. this field. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the software side of things is really interesting because, I mean, robotics is, you know, traditionally you think of a very mechanical problem. But as we're getting faster and more abstracted software interfaces, a lot of, you know, we're being able to do a lot more things on the control system side of things, like on the remote processing side of things, you know, attack those problems in, in new and interesting and different ways by adding a lot more software into the mix with higher, higher uh, performance softwares. Absolutely. I, I think that's a huge point, right? Like when I think of Fetch Robotics, I don't actually think of it as a hardware company per se. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people I talk to interact with kind of think of it that way, but that's not at all. I, I think it's hardware. There's hardware because um, you literally physically need a thing mm -hmm. that moves, let's say, a box from shelf A to shelf B. Like you have to have a piece of yeah. hardware to do that. But the reality is the way we think about it is it's going to require hardware. It's going to require software. It's going to require data. And it's really about turning, you know, the back end of e-commerce into more of a software problem in mm -hmm. general. Like, how do we actually understand um, what's happening within a warehouse? How do we actually understand what's happening uh, with logistics in general uh, at the back end of mm -hmm. e-commerce so that we can uh, solve those problems better and streamline operations, right? Right. And then you bring some of the economics of software into the startup too. Right. And, and when right. I talk with investors, that's really what they're interested in is like, Hardware represents a new a vessel that can contain software and go out into the world with the software and do something new with the software and and bring about the kind of software scalability, software economics. Um, yeah, and and this ties into you know to tie it back to our earlier conversation about you know personalization and all that. Like this is very relevant to that too. The reality is you have these market forces where consumers uh, want more personalized personalized things all the time. They want it shipped next day or same day. You have all these brands. Uh, these companies who want to obviously satisfy the consumers, and then you have, uh, you know, the poor logistics folks. Yeah, people, people don't have enough time to keep up with the demand for yeah. personalization. Yeah, yeah, and and so this is where I think uh, robotics can really come in and help out. Uh, you know, but again, flexible robotics and not the traditional repeatable kind. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So let's move on to uh, to our new segment, Click Spiral. I think we're not going to use theme music for the first uh, few episodes. We'll just use the different improvisations that our guests have come up with. That was really good. That was that was David on the strings and Roger on the uh, percussion. At the I was trying to use that music from the end of that Clue movie with Tim Curry, where they're running around the mansion. So, Click Spiral is where we talk through something that we've gotten lost in on the internet recently. And if if our listeners would like to send us their Click Spirals. They can email us at hardware at o'reilly.com and we will, David and I will get lost in your click spiral and then discuss it on the podcast. So email us at hardware at o'reilly.com. But we'll start with a guest. Uh, Roger, walk us through a recent click spiral you've been in. Um, yeah, I would say knowledge work. Knowledge work? Yeah, yeah. So, so it's interesting. I, I mean, we talked about robotics uh, earlier. Um, and we also talked about creativity and personalization. And for me, you know, they might seem like very different things, but they're all kind of like two, they're, they're all kind of, how would I put it? They're two sides of the same point. They're two mm -hmm. parallel uh, parts of a arc that we're seeing, right? Where you have automation technologies that kind of are changing the way work is done. And then it raises the question, okay, well, what's there left for people to do? And so I got really fascinated by this notion of what does the future of work look like? What, what does that mean for people and what skills should they have? Mm -hmm. So I started reading up on the Industrial Revolution. It led me to, um, I don't know if you heard of this guy, Peter Drucker, but um, yeah. yeah, amazing yeah, guy. management right. guru. Yeah, and I started reading some of his work on um, you know, knowledge workers and a knowledge economy. And 
man, that guy is prescient. <laughs> he, he is prescient. And then, and then seeing, you know, again, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, right? Um, so many parallels between how he kind of like hmm. framed the Industrial Revolution versus what are the things that we see now. And it's actually funny, like there's an article, I'm get, forgetting which one right now, but there's an article where you could almost swap out word for word, you know, swap out, um, you know, farmer, you know, swapping taxi driver and mm-hmm, swap mm-hmm. out like uh factory worker and swapping like uber driver yeah. <laughs> and, like, yeah, yeah. and like the rest of the paragraph would all hold it, it would sound huh. like it was just a modern modern take on what we're seeing yeah, these yeah. days right and yeah so things are gonna play out exactly the same but I, it just got me thinking about like what does work mean so what are knowledge skills then you know i mean traditionally we've thought about knowledge skills as you know you're really good at math you're really good at science content knowledge right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and then let me think Really, it's not, it's not, that's not the only form of knowledge, right? Like the, uh, another form of knowledge is, um, you know, social skills, uh, emotional mm-hmm. quotient, understanding people, being mm-hmm. able to influence people. And when I thought about that, that led me to uh, think about, um, you know, what we're seeing today with like the influencer economies that mm-hmm. are emerging on things like Instagram and, and right, Twitter. Right. And, and people are actually making money off this. And this is real yeah. hard work. And Brands paying these people a lot to just sort of... Uh, not even endorse them, but just kind of talk, be present. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's, right. I mean, but some people can do it and some people can't. So it's like, uh, oh yeah, there's an economy there. If I set out to amass a million Instagram followers, I don't think I would be able to. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's absolutely a, you know, a, a skill. Well, so that's, that's, what's interesting, right? I, I think we're starting to kind of see a trend where some of these, um, other knowledge mm-hmm. skills are being valued a little bit more, mm-hmm. partly through platforms like, like Etsy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it's, it doesn't feel like it's quite enough yet. Right? Yeah, and yeah. so that raises the question, are there other companies and platforms that uh, we should fund that can emerge to do that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it also raises the question too, like it, would, would all things be created equal? I think if you look at like traditional information work, right? Like uh, content, just content knowledge, it, it leads very well to, you know, the traditional hierarchical firm mm-hmm. with kind of middle management and things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, is that going to happen for, you know, uh, artistic or creative work? I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's going to pan out either. So, hmm. a, a lot of questions. Anyways, uh, hence click spiral. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I know exactly. And then you're in, David. How about your? What's your click spiral? Uh, lately, I've been really into uh, this material called Z tape. Hmm. I've, I've hmm. been doing a, uh, I've been doing a electronics design gig, which involves sticking something with electrical contacts on the bottom of it onto something else with electrical t- contacts on the top of it, mm-hmm. and soldering that is hard. So there's actually this class of materials called anisotropic conductive films, and they make it, 3M makes it into a tape that they actually use in connecting, like when they're making really flat panel LCD screens and like mobile phones and stuff. And it's a conductive tape that only conducts in one direction. Hmm. So, so if you have like a, a, a footprint for like some wires on a board, you can stick this Z tape down onto it and then just like plop your other thing that you want those to, co- to connect to just directly on top of the whole piece of tape. And since it only conducts along the Z-axis of the tape, all the connections are not shorted hmm. out together. Just things that are actually physically above other things through the huh. tape are connected. Wait, really cool. so, so it conducts only at, at only right at, angles to the surface of the tape? Yeah, only like through the, the thickness of the tape, basically. Wow. But it's pretty weird and mind-blowing. Materials are pretty awesome. Like if, Actually, so this leads into, so one of my click spirals is in fact the 3M website. Hmm. because they have a lot of stuff that's really crazy. Like they have um, they have these other materials, they have these things, they sell them as command strips. Mm-hmm. You ever seen these command strips? Mm-hmm. So they're like poster 
hanging little squares of poster or little squares of adhesive that you can use to hang posters and stuff on your mm-hmm. wall, but they have a little tab that hangs out of the bottom of them because if you stretch it along one direction, then mm-hmm. it loses its adhesive property. John, you're toting a, a large book with lots of interesting oh, pictures. Oh yeah, in so, it. so my click spiral for this episode is actually has an analog um, aspect to it. Uh, I found this book called A Railroad Atlas of the United States in 1946. Mm. Uh, this is volume four. I have two volumes at home. So 1946 is the year of uh, the maximum extent of the U.S. railroad system. When uh, uh, after that, it has it has gotten smaller as as lines have been abandoned and so on. But um, the guy who makes these draws these highly detailed railroad maps by hand by taking like old topographic maps and old railroad schematics from 1946 and traces them in different colors onto paper and then sends them to the Johns Hopkins University Press to get turned into books. The particularly interesting thing about this from sort of an historical point of view is um, you you look at railroads as representing sort of, you know, economic uh, pipelines. And a lot of places are were important economic junctions and and you know nodes in the the early 20th century that that aren't today and you can see them represented here so like the town of cairo illinois for instance and i i something tells me that it's not pronounced cairo that it's maybe pronounced cairo yeah um which is the the town at the very foot of the state of illinois at the intersection between the mississippi and ohio rivers uh, has this extraordinary nexus of railroad tracks going into it it used to be, you know, much more important uh, back when these railroads were built. But you can see them in these maps, and then you can go on Google Maps and turn to satellite view and trace out all of these railroads that used to go into into wow. the city, and they're all abandoned now. They're all totally gone. But you can see the traces in the satellite images. These, you know, embankments, old bridge footings, stuff like that. You can follow them through. You can go in and find the old railroad stations on Street View and see like where they're located. And yeah. Now it's they're funny, like, like equipment when retailers. You, when you like are wandering around like a small town or some, I mean, I'm from Colorado, which is like kind of in the West and I spend a bunch of time in the Midwest and stuff. And you wander around and you find railroad tracks, which are clearly not in use anymore. You still kind of get this weird sense of like being part of like the internet of yesteryear. Mm. You know what I mean? Like you mm-hmm. wonder like, you know, it goes in one direction and goes in the other direction. And like what, mm. how did everything used to be connected? Yeah, that's a really good way to characterize it. Cause like, look at this, look at this map here. The internet of yesteryear. <laughs> The internet of tomorrow. Do news on the... Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll put this image up on the blog post that accompanies this uh, podcast if you go to O'Reilly.com slash hardware. But this is a map of, of the railroads going into Springfield, Illinois, which is not a very large city or, or terribly consequential outside of having the capital of Illinois. But it's incredible. It's this huge hub. And to your internet point, David, at the edges of the map, you see where all these lines go. So a bunch of them go to Chicago, Cincinnati... Indianapolis, St. Louis, uh, Kansas City, and and here's the blow-up map. Springfield, Illinois used to have one, two, three, four, five, roughly five significant railroad terminals in it downtown, mm-hmm. which is crazy. So yeah, this is the internet of yesteryear is a great is a great way of characterizing it because it represents the pattern of economic development up to the middle of the 20th century, which is very different from the pattern of economic development today. Yeah. So that's my click spiral. Um, the Railroad Atlas of the United States in 1946 plus Google Maps with satellite view is an extraordinary way to uh, to waste a lunch hour sometime. So Roger, if people want to find you uh, online, where do they go? Uh, feel free to tweet me anytime at R-G-R-C-H-E-N-R-G-R-Chen on Twitter. Terrific. Thanks so much, Roger Chen. Great to have you on. 
Thank you. Thanks. Great time. Yep. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>